The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Uber's road obstacles are helping rival Lyft gain some speed, Ad King's Google and Facebook face an uncomfortable insurrection, and two Goldman Sachs alumni working for President Trump's administration are increasingly at odds. These are the topics for discussion on this week's edition of The Views Room, a conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of finance. I'm your host, Jennifer Saba, and my co-host, Anthony Curry, is away on a well-deserved vacation. All right, first up, let's talk about Uber and the fact it's been a crash test dummy of fallacies of late and what that means for its rival Lyft. Joining me here today in New York is Breaking Views columnist Rob Siren. Rob, thank you for joining me. Mm-hmm. Uber. <laughs> Where do we start? <laughs> Where from do this? we yeah. even start? It's like uh-huh. every day there's some there's a new, piece yeah. of news mm-hmm. about an executive leaving or just it just it doesn't stop. So what does this mean for, for a $70 billion company? Well, the problem is that Uber is valued as if it's going to take over the taxi market and more like globally. And the problem is that it's got so many problems that it's having trouble even getting into the taxi market. The president of the company, who's more or less the second in command in the company, stepped down. This is down. a guy from Target who they brought in. Yeah, the, exactly. The bought in, in like about room. seven months ago, six months ago. He uh, he stepped out and he gave kind of a scathing letter saying the values of Uber weren't at all what he's, you know, come to believe is our own values. There have been a, a welter of kind of allegations that there's rampant sexism in the company. And the company actually had a conference call yesterday with basically the three women in the company. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's true. It's like, let's haul out all the women. Ariana Huffington, the floor is yours. Yeah. She's the director. And, and so they had that, and there's been um, a question, that it, a program they have called Grayball, which is automated program to avoid regulators, can be used to avoid regulators. That's been uncovered. There's just been a huge number of these sorts of scandals. And the problem is that leaves an opening for other competitors, like Lyft, for instance, in the United States. So Lyft has been trailing Uber, I guess, right, in terms of market share. But they also seem to me, and maybe you've looked at this a little further, to be pretty smart about what they're doing. I mean, they decided to pull out of China and international markets, more or less, a while ago. They, and, and to concentrate on profitability and to sort of wrap themselves, whether or not it's true or not, in this sort of more do-gooder type of brand I think a lot of that's also been forced upon them. The reason they've concentrated in the United States is because they just didn't have the capital that Uber did. Uber's been able to raise, you know, just an astonishing amount of capital. Um, I think they've got over about $10 billion in cash on the balance sheet in numerous rounds. And they actually use their balance sheet as a weapon, saying to investors, you know, if you want to invest in Uber, you, you can't invest in Lyft. You know, if you invest in Lyft, we won't take your money. And since people were so eager to invest in Uber, that became kind of a a self-fulfilling sort of prophecy. And so what Lyft has done is it's concentrated only on the U.S. They've tried to burn a minimal amount of cash, but they've also raised less cash. So they've got They've got about over a billion dollars of cash on the books. But they're actually um, going to raise more money. They're going to raise more, yeah. yeah. That's and, and what they're doing is they're they're taking advantage now of what Uber's self-inflicted problems. So Lyft, for instance, they were in 200 cities about uh, last year. And this year, they their goal was to expand to 300, so add to other 100 cities. They managed to do that in the first, like, three months of the year. Mm-hmm. So they're obviously speeding it up. And part of that is because 
there's kind of reinforcement loops within the ride-hailing service business. So if you're a customer, you want to go where there are lots of drivers. And if you're a driver, you want to go on the app, which has lots of customers. And that's been Uber. But the problems with Uber has kind of shifted that. So there was the delete Uber campaign. So customers were like looking for alternatives. And drivers were also getting annoyed at Uber because the payouts they thought were uh, way too low. So they were willing to go to Lyft. So, right. And also that video that came out. Yeah. With, uh, <laughs> Travis berating yeah. a driver. Doesn't help things when no. the driver's like, listen, I need to make more money. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so what it's meant is that there's been kind of a shift towards Lyft, and that's helped Lyft um, grow the business. And to grow, they obviously need more capital because none of these companies are making money. Yeah, well, anecdotally, I know I know a couple different people that have said, well, I don't want to use Uber anymore, and I'm going to go ahead and, and use Lyft, um, which, you know, the, the, these things start to snowball. And, mm-hmm. you know, and the other thing is Uber doesn't exactly – so their advantage is their scale, but it's not like they're doing something special, right? It's easy to replicate their business model. Yeah, it's it's actually they they like to present themselves as being incredibly difficult. You know, this technology company. It's actually technology. It's an isn't, app. Yeah, it is. It, <laughs> it isn't really that hard. That's underplay it. Um, but, you know, that and, and that's that's one of the reasons why Uber's been trying so hard to get into self-driving cars. If they had an actual self-driving car. That might be a bigger, you know, advantage uh, against rivals. And the other thing is that they don't make money. Um, They pay out a huge chunk of what they receive to the drivers. So if they have self-driving cars, that means less money being funneled outside of the company to the drivers. And that would mean profits would go up. So that's why they're trying this so hard. Let's talk about two other Silicon Valley kings, if you will, uh, Google and Facebook. They are running into some trouble, most recently in Great Britain. Google has been running ads against questionable content and for pretty big brands, L'Oreal, and then probably the mistake that got them in a lot of trouble was the British government. So the Royal Navy, et cetera, running against- The Queen even, wasn't there? The Queen. The Queen was one of them too. So running against, you know, uh, videos- from, you know, American white supremacist David Duke. Uh, this blew up. And, and uh, you know, they, uh, it appears that they kind of addressed it, but probably not good enough. Um, and that, you know, it's sort of snowballing now that a lot of brands are starting to pull their uh, advertising dollars from Google, just in the UK, but that's an issue. Havas, which is a huge French ad agency, said, listen, we're not we're not going on Google until we kind of figure out what's happening here. And it seems to be snowballing. And it also reminds me of what's been going on with Facebook and all these outcries against fake content and that Mark Zuckerberg needs to get his house in order and, and finding out how to filter this stuff through. These two players which dominate digital advertising seem to be kind of wearing their crowns. Well, that, that's the problem, isn't it? They, they have so much power. And, and there are reasons why they, for Google, for instance, if they just gave out their algorithm as to how things were matched, in other words, how search results came up, people would be able to game the system more. And so Google's been, Google hasn't really given that much information to people about exactly how their business works. You know, it's it's a bit kind of a, a, a bit black boxy, and and yeah. Facebook similar similarly as well. You know, they they say, hey, look, we make sure all your ads are placed exactly against you know the type of readers you want to see, but there's limited transparency, and so for a lot of advertisers, there's an element of trust. You know, like are you actually getting what you're paying for? Well, I mean, 
also Google in the past has been pretty decent about rooting through some of the stuff. Like you, like demand media was is kind of a classic example that's usually raised, where they were gaming the system, trying to like you know creep up in search results, and Google was like, hey, wait a minute, we're we're gonna tweak our algorithms to kind of weed out this crappy content. Yeah. Um, I mean, there, there's something you know there are market forces for that because if for Google especially. Um, you know, you want search results. And if, if you are searching for something and you get a bunch of junk articles, then it's probably not as worthwhile to you as to go onto Google. So there's an incentive, there's at least some market incentive for them to, you know, try to have a quality output to, for people's searches. What seems to be happening now is there's more of a pushback by advertisers and also by governments. Because these companies, you know, Google Google has been under some regulatory threat for a while. Facebook, it's just starting. Um, that's because, you know, these, these firms were relatively small. It takes governments, governments work um, slowly, antitrust, uh, as opposed to, you know, and technology. Been, the, the EU has been particularly aggressive. Yes, it has. And, you know, you can debate whether that's due to the close contacts of the Obama administration and Google, or whether it's just, you know, they're just operating on different timescales. You know, technology companies, Essential de facto monopolies can spring up almost overnight. Facebook wasn't even a very big company, you know, 10 years ago. Right. It takes time for governments to kind of catch up to what's happening in the market. And it seems like the risk now is that, you know, regulators are going to start looking at Facebook and saying, you know, okay, what what do you have here? You've got a, you've got a monopoly here. You know, how do we know you're actually treating your customers fairly? And that's 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 a big risk for them. Yeah, it's a big risk. And, and and I think it's also telling that advertisers are starting to push back. I mean, again, they don't have a lot of places to go because between Google and Facebook, they are going to basically command like more than 50% of the $260 billion expected to be spent next year in digital ad sales, which is extraordinary, right? Because we're, you know, what do you do with that? How do you get the reach and the audience? But if the audience gets upset that they're seeing, you know, bad content and ads that are reputable are being placed against it. I mean, we've seen this in other instances, like with Breitbart News, there's been a boycott of those ads. And, you know, it could cause problems and it can snowball. I mean, it's not to say that that they're going to, you know, lose a ton of business next year. But if they don't address these issues quickly, it, this could be a problem for them. We've seen it with Microsoft. We've seen it. You could use the entire newspaper industry as, as, a, as a case study and and how not to get too complacent. And yeah, I mean, the, the risk is that this advertisers shift to other mediums, other companies. You know, I mean, there there aren't that many alternatives. And there's also again the whole risk. You know, they if enough of these stories appear in the news, customers you know saying that they're being mistreated by these companies, regulators are going to take a harder look at these at, at Facebook and Google. Yeah. All right, Rob, thank you for coming on the show. As always, we appreciate it. Welcome. One would think that presidential economic advisor Gary Cohn and Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin would be on the same page about a whole host of issues, given their backgrounds at Goldman Sachs, but that's not the case. Joining us to discuss the duo is Washington columnist Gina Chan. Gina, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. 
basically there's a lot of things going on between these two guys, right? There's, it seems to be there's some simmering tension between them. One of the things that's, that's kind of brewing is there's an important post at the Fed that needs to be filled that's still vacant. And it seems like they are kind of tussling over who is the best person. Well, I mean, what's happening? I mean, you would think that they're both coming from a common area that, that, that they would sort of be on the same page about a lot of things. Yeah, they definitely have a, a similar background and were actually part of the same partner class at Goldman Sachs in 1994. So they do actually go way back, but they do have some differences and some of it actually might be just on style. I think in terms of substance, they do have similar views, but I think Mnuchin in particular, because he isn't familiar with Washington the way Cohen is. Cohen came here often when he was president of Goldman Sachs and knows a lot of lawmakers and, and others in town. Um, Mnuchin's a, a newcomer. He was out in California as head of a bank out there. And producing movies. Lego yeah, exactly. Movie. And, and Batman Lego movie. Yeah, and Avatar and uh, among others. So I think he has a bit more to prove. And I think you're uh, seeing that in terms of sort of the harder line he is taking on some issues like trade and financial regulation. So, I mean, like, what what does that mean? I, frankly, it seems like the administration that there's kind of a lot of factions competing. And I don't know if that is a normal thing among all presidential cabinets or if it seems to be particularly bad under the Trump administration. But does this kind of speak to a larger problem? Or again, is it just kind of a stylistic difference? Cohen, you know, seems to know the, the roads a little better in D.C. versus Mnuchin. Um, does it speak to a broader problem? No, I, I think it actually is starting to become a broader issue. Take, for example, uh, you mentioned the, the Fed vice chair um, spot that Cohn had been leading the effort on finding a replacement there, and it's um, a key role because you basically oversee bank regulation and, and kind of how tough or, or more even keel you'd want to be on bank stress tests and living wills and that sort of thing. We saw Gary Cohn back, uh, former, or I should say current, um, General Electric executive uh, David Nason. He was seen as having a more measured approach, but he ended up, you know, facing some critics because he had actually been part of Hank Paulson's Treasury Department uh, under the George W. Bush administration, and because of that, he was involved in some of the crisis-era bailouts, which was used against him, and, and eventually he uh, pulled his uh, name from the running. And now we see another name emerge, um, Decker lawyer Tom Vertanian, who is a, a former regulator himself, but has spent most of the recent years defending banks and other financial institutions against Washington regulators and is seen as having a more radical approach and also having a Mnuchin support. So we could definitely see you know, issues of substance diverging because of this. It seems to me that Thomas Veritanian would be the, one of like a perfect candidate for the post, given kind of the Trump administration's affinity for executives and others who kind of want to come in and, and sort of break things, if you will. Yeah, no, he definitely fits into um, that style. I mean, President Trump himself has said he wants to dismantle Dodd-Frank. Uh, but in reality, uh, 
it, it will likely be actually a, a more measured approach given Dodd-Frank was passed in 2010. Um, banks have had years to incorporate all of their rules into the way they're structured and the way they operate now. So you hear even from Wall Street and their lobbyists that they don't really want a wholesale change um, because that would frankly disrupt a lot of things that they've uh, set up already. Right. Um, not to say, you know, they, they definitely do not like the stress test, feel like it's a black box. You know, various other capital requirements and liquidity requirements are, are things that they have concerns over. But I think even when you talk to the banks privately, would actually, a lot of them would prefer a more measured approach. So they also have a differing view on trade. And, and I think this is very interesting. And, and maybe you can add some more insight into this. But Mnuchin seems to be anti-free trade. And Cohen is on the other side of this, you know, kind of trying to pull back the reins on this. Is, is that because Mnuchin feels like he kind of has to echo what Trump's beliefs are in terms of his trade beliefs? Or, you know, is, is there some wider rift happening? Yeah, well, I think Mnuchin, because he was representing the United States and the Trump administration at uh, the G20 summit in Germany, felt more pressure to be tough and to echo Trump's comments, as you said, on on trade, where he's talked about, you know, ripping up trade deals and how they're not fair and the U.S. has too many trade deficits with certain countries and all of that needs to be fixed. And I think Mnuchin was given the orders to bring a pretty tough message. So he was being a pretty good foot soldier. I mean, privately, and when you've seen sort of Mnuchin's background, he's he's actually not an ideologue and he's seen as being more moderate yeah. and pragmatic, but- And Cohen is Cohen too. I mean, he seems to yeah. be moderate as well. No, exactly. And, and that's why it's interesting to see the sort of diverging paths they're taking. Um, where, you know, part of it's sort of jockeying for influence and then part of it is sort of their their different roles where, again, since Mnuchin was representing the Trump administration at this uh, global meeting, I think he wanted to send a strong message. So I, I'd be remiss not to bring this up, speaking of divergent paths, but uh, so coming up on the agenda is a vote in Congress for Trump care. The new health care bill that has split Republicans, and, and it seems that this thing may not pass. Uh, and as a result, the market is responding in kind that, you know, it seems like, okay, if this can't happen, what does that mean down the road for some of Trump's other business-friendly reforms, such as, you know, tax cuts on, on corporations? What's your read on this? Like, what's happening, and, and where do you think this is going to go? Yeah, no, I think the markets have actually finally caught up to kind of where reality is in terms of how things get done or, or not done in Washington. I think they've been sort of overly optimistic with the Trump administration coming in and promising to do all these things, but now they're seeing that it's actually much tougher to get done, even when Republicans control all the areas of government, both chambers and Congress, and the White House. Uh, so there is a vote coming up, but as you say, it looks like as of now they don't seem to have the votes, and actually the Freedom Caucus, which is made up of about 40 or so conservative Republicans in the House of Representatives are having a press conference today to talk about their own repeal Obamacare bill um, that they want to actually replace the other Republican bill that their House leaders introduced uh, just not too long ago. 
Yeah, that's that's extraordinary that, like you said, the Republicans basically have power and yet um, they can't seem to push through what they want to push through because there's so many different viewpoints on what they want to do. So that makes it probably never a dull moment for you during the day. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a lot to keep track of. Yeah, a lot to keep track of. Well, Gina, thank you very much for joining us. As always, we appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Okay, that's our show for this week. I'd like to thank Rob Siren and Gina Chan. And thanks to our producers, Bethel Hopday and Andrew D'Antonio. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com and subscribe to the Views Room on iTunes. And do please share your opinions about our show, especially on iTunes. Check us out next week for another episode of the Views Room, and thanks for joining us.